I'm going to welcome Eva Sage Gavin from Accenture uh, back to the stage. Um, and uh, let's see, so I'll let them take chairs so I can uh, say, and sitting next to, to Eva is, uh, towards me, is Shweta Srivastava, Director of 21st Century Employability at Microsoft. Um, next to Shweta is Chris Trout, Vice President of Learning and Development, the Walt Disney Company. Um, and next to Chris is Vantan Quinlan, uh, CEO of Future Health, uh, and delighted to welcome Matt Heimer from Fortune to moderate today's discussion. So Matt, let me turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Maureen. Thanks everyone for, uh, for being here today. Uh, this is a panel about uh, trends and upskilling at large employers, uh, and this is a topic that uh, evokes a lot of passion and excitement uh, at my not-so-large uh, employer, which is Fortune Magazine. Um, we're a, a business journalism organization, and uh, we have made our mission statement uh, revolve around making business better. And we we really focus on the double meaning in that better. We want uh, we want to help businesses be more efficient, but we also want to help them serve a greater ethical and social good. And the reason that we're passionate about upskilling and write about it with increasing regularity is that uh, it, it really fulfills both of those duties. You know, obviously it is uh, uh, to offer upskilling opportunities in education uh, is an act of enlightened self-interest by any employer. It's going to help them be uh, more nimble, more competitive, more adaptable uh, in a very fast changing, very technology driven uh, landscape. Um, but at the same time, it's an opportunity to provide a real social good by extending greater opportunities for economic mobility, uh, especially to those who are uh, relatively low on the earnings ladder but have the capacity uh, to become uh, higher earners and to have greater economic security. One of the panelists when we were speaking uh, down in the lunchroom earlier said to me, uh, it's ridiculous to characterize anybody as, uh, as unskilled, it's really a matter of just uh, bringing out and introducing skills that someone may not have yet. And, and that's really where this panel's focused. Uh, and best of all, the idea of upskilling, as I think everyone in this room knows, is, is uh, adaptable and dynamic and something that, uh, that really any, any organization can, uh, can shape to its own needs and the needs of its, its workforce. And the panelists that you're going to hear from today uh, really exemplify that, really approaching the topic from all kinds of great angles. So I'm thrilled to be here. I also want to get out of the panelists' way and, and let them talk. So, uh, so we're going to start uh, essentially with some, some origin stories, a sense of what, what, what needs are driving and prompting uh, the upskilling efforts that each of these uh, uh, that each of these companies are doing now. So I wanted to start uh, with you, Eva, uh, and ask, uh, you know, Accenture, it's a technology company, a knowledge company, really uh, almost everybody uh, in your workforce is almost certainly better educated than, say, I am. Uh, but obviously there's an upskilling, there is an upskilling need. And so the, so the question, uh, what, what really motivates Accenture to invest in, in more education? Well, um, like many of my colleagues, some of whom I've had the honor to serve at Disney, um, the idea of what is our ultimate service? It's mm -hmm. to our clients. And if you think about staying ahead of your clients, they're expecting the best from us. So in 2014, we looked at that. We looked at a workforce uh, and said, you know, we need to be looking at all the new technology mm -hmm. and then giving access to opportunity. You know, the short story on that is 350,000 people have now gone through a learning pathway. Um, we have um, curated it with some of the best leaders in the world and this idea of learning boards. So this, uh, this theme that um, we've been talking about from Ellie, and, and um, I was sharing, I was the head of HR for Gap Inc. I also work with PepsiCo with 3,500 Taco Bell franchises. 
no matter who you are or where you start and your humility about your own background, you can aspire. And so what we tried to do was take that aspiration from whatever your starting point is and then open up the chance to be the best you can be. Using technology for access, for virtuality, uh, anywhere, anytime in bite-sized piece, bite pieces. But the other aspect of it is how do you become visible with the new skills you have? Mm -hmm. So Ellie, I so enjoyed your comments and my colleagues have so much. It's not just having them, it's then getting the access to the opportunity and using technology so that you can now go to that job at Disney or at Microsoft or at Futuro. And um, we've put 350,000 people um, in that position um, and uh, over 4 million instances of learning experiences, 4 and, million. And do those numbers include uh, clients of Accenture's as well as Accenture's internal folks? I mean, these are platforms you're sometimes extending to companies with which you're working. Well, uh, the 350,000 that I mentioned are our workforce, so 500,000, but it's a really great point you're making. Again, I, I want to uh, cede the time sure, to my colleagues, but we are here today, many of us, to share our best practices. And so my colleague from Microsoft will talk about, will often do what's a best practice for Microsoft that Accenture can accelerate, what's sure. a best practice from Accenture that we can accelerate with Disney. Yep. And so a lot of times we look at the ecosystem yep. and um, 350,000 mm -hmm. is just the nucleus of what you're about to hear from my friends. Well, I'm glad you teed that up with the sort of with the ecosystem because uh, Shweta, your own work as you were describing it, uh, to me really involves a kind of upskilling as a concept you're extending externally rather than internally. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about yes. what, what Microsoft is doing on this front? I'm so glad you said ecosystem because that's how we're looking at it too. Um, so Microsoft, we have a unique challenge because uh, Microsoft is driving digital transformation for companies, cities, governments and especially through our cloud environment, Azure. And what that means is that we need um, talent that has the skill to, uh, for adoption and deployment of our technologies, right? Our growth aspirations are dependent on that. And so um, when you look at, so I'm gonna give you an example and some data here. Um, cloud environment driving digital transformation is one of our solution areas. Um, only 16% of the organizations have the skill and processes required for implementing cloud environment. Mm -hmm. um, World Economic Forum, 60% of the companies report that skill gaps in their local, uh, local labor market prevent them from implementing their desired technologies. Mm -hmm. Then at the same time, um, another figure from PwC says 70% of failed digital transformations are because of lack of user adoption and change in behavior. So it's like coming full circle, right? There's is if there's lack of skill and talent, it impacts user adoption, which, which creates, which, which leads to failed or unsuccessful digital transformation efforts. And for a company and, like Microsoft, you can't just offer these skills and do all the work for your clients. Yes. That can't scale. Yeah. That we can't create technology and then yes. people have to deploy it. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk to our customers and partners, they're already feeling that crunch, maybe not so much at Microsoft company yet, but our customers and partners are already not finding the talent. Mm -hmm. um, and so where will this talent come from, right? And so if you look at academic institutions, um, another figure from US Department of Labor, uh, US universities are expected to, um, to, sh to, to produce only about 29% of the required grads for computer specialist positions. And so another issue in tech is that women are hugely underrepresented. So only 18% are, you know, make up this graduate number. We're talking about 
what, like 14 million positions. So we're talking about huge numbers globally, right? And where are these people? And so that really uh, forces us to think about skilling in a very different way, go beyond our employees. So our, our focus is like the following buckets. One is how do we support our customers and partners? Uh, to build that skill in their company for to promote user adoption. So we internally, we have teams that work with our customers to create their skill plans. We have trainers who then train them. We offer other things like, you know, free certification subsidies, like whatever support and infrastructure we can give them to, to help them with the skill plans. Um, the second thing is um, we have employee skilling, which is in the company. Um, where the big focus for us employee skilling is technical areas, uh, sales capability, and managerial capability. For technical skills, it's very role-based, and uh, it's, it's a way for us to show to our customers, like build trust by knowing our products and solutions. So there's a lot of uh, training that gets assigned to us on the products and solutions. The third area, which is my focus areas, is which is really building the talent pipeline for future, which is where the ecosystem comes in because we see that there's a lot of collaboration required across uh, employers, um, academia, governments, workforce development organizations. And so the work we're doing there is how do we create um, an engagement strategy, K through career, so K through 12, higher ed, to engage institutions, students, educators, um, you know, in a bunch of ways, from content to certifications to classroom tools to creating job channels for people coming out of our technology certifications. And how do we, a really important focus for us also is how do we engage um, students much earlier, like, you know, in their K through 12 journey, so they are exposed to STEM uh, education in an interesting, inspiring way. So they pick technology as a career solution. And that on-ramp will be a steep Exactly, because yeah. that is probably lack of access to STEM education is probably one of the bigger reasons why we're here today. Sure. You know, so, um, so those are like the big buckets yeah. where we are focused on thinking about upskilling. Thinking about the talent pipeline and, and, and working from, the, from your angle to develop that pipeline actually makes me think of what uh, brings Vaughn here. Uh, also trying to develop a talent pipeline that's sort of under undernourished right now. Um, Vaughn, yours is sort of the newest of the of the uh, enterprises represented here on the stage. Can you tell us a little bit about Futuro and what it aims to accomplish? Sure, happy to, uh, Matt. But uh, even though the organization is new, the relationships here are um, long time. Mm -hmm. So even Sage Gavin and I, uh, when I was in the private sector, in the energy sector. Uh, were one of five uh, were amongst the five companies that launched Skills for America with the Ob Obama White House, mm -hmm. um, and then I went to the uh, public sector, uh, driving the the workforce mission of the largest system of higher education in the country, which is the California Community Colleges, and so we really regrew and re restructured uh, the career technical education programs there to be more responsive to employers, and so once again here we have an industry, the healthcare industry. Uh, that in California alone is going to be short 500,000 allied health workers over the next five years. And so Kaiser Permanente, along with the United Healthcare Workers, which is a, a labor union, have come together and committed $130 million over the next four years to increase the, the, the number of credentialed individuals who can come out and take these allied healthcare jobs. And what is an allied healthcare job? That might be a term that's not familiar. Yes, I, I figured you would add that. Thank you. <coughs> um, all right. So imagine if you left this room 
in your Uber and you got into a car accident, now God, God forbid that would happen, it, imagine all those individuals touching you who would be providing healthcare. So from the emergency medical technician that drives the ambulance to you, to checking the people who check you in at the hospital, to taking your stats and your vitals and your blood, right? Everybody who, who takes care of you until you exit the hospital, they're all, minus the doctors, they are all allied healthcare professionals. And they're mostly trained through what we call a middle skill credential, more than a high school degree, but uh, lower than a four-year degree. So sub-baccalaureate, uh, industry valley credential, uh, certificates, associate degrees program. Um, so there's a wealth of these jobs that you know are in the 48K to 85K range. So they're good jobs. Um, and what they suffer from is that they're largely invisible and while over the dinner table, you may be talking about the nurses and doctors and the policemen and teachers and the lawyers, um, there's not a lot of conversation about, hmm, let's grow up and become a medical sonographer, you know, uh, or a, a radiology technician. So these are good careers. They're growing. And with the, not only the growing population, but the fact that it, we're graying. And when you gray, you have a, sort of a proportionally more need for health care. It's going to be important um, from an equity pr perspective that we all have access to healthcare workers in our own backyard, mm -hmm. right? From an equity of healthcare, um, and in many backyards, you will need to grow grow the the talent pool uh, from the localities. So this is uh, the, the issue that we're tackling. How do you grow the the largest network of allied health workers in the nation? And we're going to start w the work in California. Yeah, well, it's urgent stuff. Um, not quite as uh, new, but still relatively new, is the Aspire program, which Chris has been uh, leading at Disney. Uh, and of course, Disney is this, uh, you know, another enormous employer with an incredibly diverse range of jobs from, uh, you know, everyone from the, you know, from the janitor at the theme park to the head animator at Pixar. And so uh, Aspire is really designed to be, you know, uh, an education program across this whole large platform. Uh, and it just had a one-year anniversary just a couple of months ago. Uh, Chris, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how that got started, what inspired it, and uh, what needs it's trying to fill? Sure. Um, <clears throat> sticking with this theme of ecosystem, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we do a lot to already care for our employees and our cast members, whether it's leadership development, onboarding, technical training, skills training, we do a lot. But it became clear to us about 18 months ago that their hourly workforce, of whom there are now about 94,000, there was something Everything that we've been talking about today and speakers have talked about and, and what Upskill America is all about, there was, there was something to be done for them, not only across the nation, but uniquely for us. So what we did was set out to build a program that would provide unique education benefits just to the hourly workforce that works for Disney. <clears throat> and as we were doing that, I, as we were exploring it, I started researching education in America, and I know you all know this, right? But there is just tremendous opportunity in the education space in America. Tremendous opportunity about graduation rates not being where they are. Then you look at key demographics, they're not where they need to be on graduation rates. And then when you start looking at, okay, if you're a full-time hourly employee in America today and trying to lead a family, lead a significant other, just have a life and do your job and study like it's hard like it's really really hard so what we set out to do was create uh, what we feel is something never been done before a very comprehensive education investment program for our hourly employees that have two goals one allow them to invest for themselves in the career of their dreams to your point we have lots of jobs at disney 
Um, we, we, have, um, we have lots of hospitality jobs. We have lots of culinary jobs. We have lots of uh, IT jobs. We have also have nursing jobs, as an example. We have a few nurses, though, not a lot. So we wanted to create an, a comprehensive program that allowed anybody that was working at Disney in an hourly capacity to study whatever they wanted, goal number one. Goal number two, prepare people for the skills that are going to be needed for the 21st century. And, and I'll add one thing to this, which is this notion of mindset. Right? I think it's really important when you're, think back to when you went to school. Right? When I think back to when I went to school, yes, I learned things that are on the degree. But some of my biggest learnings from what I was learning that wasn't necessarily related to the course of study. Right? How do I get through a challenge? How do I get resilient? How do I work with someone that I don't know right off the bat and have to do something? So this mindset notion is really important. And I'm proud to say that, that about 16 months later, of those 94,000 employees, over 13% of them are participating in this program. And that's because when we built Disney Aspire, we built it to be evergreen. Um, we want it to be constantly changing, constantly growing. Like Ellie, we partner with Guild Education. That's a great provider for us and helps us in this space. And we started off with about 100 different programs. It was really important to us that we have everything available from an education and development standpoint. What do I mean by that? Well, some people need, want to complete high school, not get a GED, but actually complete high school and feel the success of what it means to complete high school. Other folks just want to get better in the trades. Other folks just want to prepare for college. Maybe they're not ready for college, right? And then bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. We wanted all of that. We started off with 100. Today, we have over 340 actual college degree programs from 13 different uh, university providers. And then we have another 100 in the programs and the trades uh, pieces like that. And um, we're just we're just super proud of it. And, and I'm I'm mostly like I can tell you all these big numbers and it's easy to throw around thousands of people. But like just last week, I was at a round table with a group of cast members at Walt Disney World. And, you know, I hear the story of this gentleman and uh, he came to America with $58 in his pocket and got a security job in New York City. He lived through 9-11. He was at the World Trade Center. And then he moved to Walt Disney World, went down to Florida to get to, to start a new life again. And he's he never had a college degree. And today, he's going and getting a college degree in criminology, because not because he needs it anymore. For, he goes, but I want that satisfaction. I want that for my life. And those are the stories that, that give me goosebumps and get me fired up to do it. The numbers are great, but I, I'm a big believer in that uh, you work this one at a time. And by working it one at a time, bigger things come. You talked about some, uh, as you pointed out, you got some great uptake. The numbers are really good so far. Um, I, I'd love to get a chance to talk with everybody about what, what are the benchmarks by which they're measuring success? What are some areas where you're really seeing measurable progress? And maybe what are also some other uh, areas where you're, uh, you know, where you'd like to be further along than you've, than you've already gone? Uh, and Vaughn, since you're in a newer situation, I'd love to hear about the benchmarks you're aiming for. But, um, but I'll start uh, with the folks who've had some programs uh, up and running for a while. I mean, uh, so you talked about strong uptake, Chris. Where are some areas where you'd like to see the numbers needles move a little further or areas where things didn't work as well as you expected? Just uh, some areas where you're seeing some learnings and room for improvement. Um, so, well, let, let, me, let me start with, if I could, some things that we weren't necessarily looking for but are now seeing. Sure. So by that I mean 
Uh, if we look at engagement of our employees, we constantly measure engagement. Engagement of not only participating employees, but eligible employees and just employees at large has gone up double digits. Engagement right? with all their work. Engagement with all their work. So it's not just limited to, right, so the, the term employee engagement, right, the degree to which um, you at work feel not only that you're giving of what's required for the job, but you're giving discretionary effort. You're putting in more than is expected, and, and you're not doing it because you have to, you're doing it because you want to, right? So employee engagement, up by double digits. Uh, another measure of success for us, um, the company is supporting me for my future development, up by double digits. And then interestingly, a question like around the, my comp the company cares about my well-being up as well. Uh, we, weren't, we weren't trying to solve for those things. We were trying to, like I said, just invest in people. And it's wonderful to see ripple effects like that. The big work we have to, and, and we're seeing other positive things, whether it be reduction of turnover in key roles, uh, acquisition and people coming to the company and saying that Disney Aspire is one of the, re one of the main reasons. So it's one of the top three reasons that people come for a job uh, at Disney. We, weren't, we didn't plan for that either, but we're getting it. All we gotta do the work now is career and all the measures related to career. Go back to why they're doing this. Like, so how do we track career? How do we do pathways? How do we uh, line people up with different, uh, different abilities? The education providers that we're using today, some already had pipelines into our company, others are brand new. So how do we get, how do we set measures for those and really drive that career measure? Sure. <clears throat> What, how about you? Where are you seeing? I mean, you're looking outside the company rather than inside, yeah. but what are some benchmarks that you're watching closely? So that is where we're focusing and we need to have a more robust and crisp strategy. Because if you think about customers, partners, Microsoft has a lot of data. Mm -hmm. Microsoft along with LinkedIn, we're just sitting on a lot of data. Sure. But, so you know who your customers are. You know, you know, you have all that data on who needs to be skilled and where are we with respect to completion of skill plans and training people. Where we don't have data is, uh, and a structured strategy that you're working on is when you talk about the world at large, right? So when you talk about um, educational institutions, when you talk about K through 12, when you talk about workforce development in general, um, and we want it to be really scalable because the mission of the company is to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And that was the aha moment when I joined Microsoft. Scale means anybody on the planet, on the planet should be able to use it. So, um, we're doing a bunch of things. One, um, we're, we want to focus more and more on the education sector. And we've been present in that, but uh, there's been like different teams working on that. So we've got a bunch of different offerings. And how do we all, uh, how do we pull it all together to have a front door with a very clear strategy, very crisp messaging for the audience, a very connected experience, not different for different uh, audience across this journey, but like a, like a very um, robust career path, learning path for different career pathways, kind of ending in our certifications and uh, being uh, having an expertise and preference for our technology. And then how do we create um, um, job and employment opportunities? So like an end-to-end -end strategy is what we're working on. Um, and then on the workforce development side, uh, side um, scale is really important to us, especially with the developing areas like AI specialists, and there's just not enough uh, clarity on what those skills mean. So a few, few partnerships that we recently got involved in. So we have one partnership with General Assembly to train 15,000 people on AI skills over the next three years. Then there's open classroom for another uh, thousand people over three years. There's springboard. 
uh, another 3,000, uh, and, and these are global, right? So we're reaching different sets of audiences. Their different models are different, business models are different, but um, we're trying to create reach and, uh, and build, I, I would say, expand the talent pool beyond what already exists, which, doesn't, which includes people who are, are trying career transitioners, trying to reskill, which includes people who are trying to upskill, move from data analyst to data scientist, to big data management. So, you know, getting those pathways, um, the credentials that, uh, that are valued in the industry and have a better sense of our audience, um, we really want to build more and more partnerships to scale so we could work with our content certifications but have our partners go out and train more and more people. That's what we're after and it's a, it's a mammoth effort when you sure. talk about, when you think about the numbers and then there's an inclusion aspect of it because being a technology company, you know, you hear the leaders talk a lot about automation is driving a lot of this disruption. So it feels like we also have an obligation towards the society because uh, um, you know, one of the things that we saw recently in, in a McKinsey report, I know I threw a lot of data, but that's what we see sure. all day. <laughs> but in 20, by 2030, we're expecting about 375 million people will change their job categories because of the disruption caused by digital transformation, AI, machine learning, all of this uh, automation. And so how do we play a part mm -hmm. in uh, getting people to have the skills that's required for sustainable employment opportunities in the 21st century. So those are our big focus areas where we feel there's a lot that needs to be done mm -hmm. and uh, through partnerships and uh, a scalable offer for these different yeah. stakeholders and audience groups. Sure, and it has to mobilize a lot of people outside of the private sector too, I think, probably to, to reach that. Yes, that's the ecosystem yeah. part of it. Yes, exactly. Um, the pathway issue, I know, I, Eva, I, I know we got to speak a little bit earlier and you were talking about trying to build clearer pathways and stronger pathways and more inclusive pathways. Uh, what are some of, the, some of the benchmarks you're watch, watching to see how well that's working and where do you see areas that need improvement? Well, um, building off this idea, there's two words that, that um, we think about and it's the phrase uh, you've been hearing, inclusive growth. Mm -hmm. Um, think about it just for a second on the numbers we've been sharing, but first graders that are going to be entering in the next five years will end up in roles we can't even imagine today. So these big meta themes about resiliency, lifelong learning, access to opportunity, you know, we talk about 75 million jobs being impacted by technology and 130 million new ones. Um, what are those talent pools that might be um, under accessed? And one of the great equalizers about technology, and this is what we do do all day, is you can actually see people for full skill sets. So we've been using great examples, but just let's do a really practical example. Um, to the extent that you enter a program, and let's say it's on artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. and you actually are taking experiential, experiential learning with any background, maybe you stop at the basic level, maybe you go to mastery, and maybe through this democratization of learning, you go to expert. Well, I'm now looking to fill my team to serve a client need. I can go out using technology to say, you know, who are all the people out of 500,000 that are expert? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what their zip code is, if they're male or female or anything else. And I'm really pleased to show you the facts of that. Accenture has committed to be 50% female by 2025. Let me say that again. Uh, yes, across the organization, 50%. But let me say something even more powerful. Today in Davos, Julie Sweet is our chief executive officer. You know what she did on her first day, September 1st of this year? She published her learning boards. 
of how she went from a legal career and an expert as a securities attorney into uh, Accenture and how she learned over the last 10 years running a huge part of our business and earned the right to continuous learning. And so those actions speak louder than words. Sure. Atina, our head of artificial intelligence, is a woman. I lead a multi-billion dollar client facing practice. I think you can tell that I'm passionate about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to, I started in technology in the 80s as one of the first females in technology through Xerox Corporation. Back then, it was a wide open field. If we get narrow and say it has to be a computer science degree from these 10 institutions, mm -hmm. I'm going to be out there saying, here's 100 other places to go that my friends and I have identified. I've worked for presidents with no college degree, retail is a great equalizer, that are extraordinary, and yep. they will learn for the rest of their lives. So inclusive growth, let's go places that other people aren't. Let's use technology to get people to be seen for all they have to offer, and let's not exclude anyone um, just because they didn't go through XYZ as a path to get there. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's a great lesson. i just add to that because I think it's so important, inclusive growth. Um, I think the other thing to think about beyond just upskilling, like what are the uh, what are the other talent models, right, that allow for these people to to get more experience and come into the mainstream. As an example, Microsoft has a partnership with Upwork, mm -hmm. so to you know to engage them in different projects and and so it's it's a partnership you know legally validated and everything. So it's a single sign on for us. It's really easy. But um, so as I work with these freelancers, they're all over the globe. Uh, they've taken, like if I w work with them on Microsoft-related projects, they've taken these certifications mm -hmm. from um, you know, self-paced courses on Microsoft Learn and taken the certification and then they're there. Uh, they're sometimes in cities and countries where there are not a lot of jobs and you know, they're taking care of their parents. And, I mean, the, the point is that they have the skill to do the job and that's all that should matter. So if we can't hire them full-time, there's so many other opportunities, but are we open to them? Mm -hmm. And there is an organization, SummerSource, that where they were, I'm sure you know about them, they, they train refugees on technical skills, and then you can yeah. give work to them, right? And so there's so many different ways to give them experience that would be to bring them into the mainstream careers, and at the same time, solving your talent shortage mm -hmm. needs. So I guess today it's about continuous learning and always keeping, I think, your, our minds open to the, to the possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd be terrible if I didn't mention that partnering together, we've reached 3 million people, um, 600,000 US through Skills to Succeed. Um, you know, knowledge is, is access, it's opportunity, it's resiliency, it's hope. Absolutely. And so a lot of us spend our time, we have Workday here as well, just transferring that knowledge into the community mm -hmm. so they know where to go and then how do they become visible as a gig economy or a liquid economy worker in the yeah. way that they can be. Absolutely. I'm, I'm seeing a parallel opportunity. I mean, there's so much growth in, in technology. There's also so much growth in healthcare because of exactly the, the trends that you were talking about earlier, Vaughn, and the, the graying of the community. Um, but I can also see a similarity in that sense of, uh, as you were saying, no one sits around their kitchen table and says, oh, I really want to be a medical stenographer. There, there may be a talent pool out there that is fully qualified to do these very good jobs that, that, uh, that are in allied health, but they don't, they don't necessarily know it. They might be intimidated by the thought that those, those jobs are only available to someone with a medical degree. Um, so as you're building your organization and kind of getting started, I'm wondering, you know, uh, given the breadth of your opportunities and given what you can learn from 
other upskilling efforts. You know, what, what are some of the, the thoughts that are going in your mind as you try to build this pool? What are some of the strategies you're hoping to, to implement? So healthcare is highly credentialed. Um, as an industry. And so if you can imagine, if no, you have no credentials, no interview, no interview, no job, right? I mean, yeah. So where you put these pathways and who comes into these pathways will be really important. So we have an operational goal to get to 10,000 new, new credentialed workers um, for Futuro Health. And when I, uh, when I say that, you know, part of the inclusive growth is opening up the pipeline, right, in, in, um, to communities that normally wouldn't access it. So as part of uh, our rollout, uh, this year, you know, we're we're going to be working with United Healthcare workers, who had done a good job um, enrolling communities into the ACA uh, for for health insurance, and that and they want to get on the community, take word out about these good jobs, and especially we want to find uh, about 1,500 individuals who are Spanish speakers, because again. Health workers ought to be reflective of the communities they serve, and 28% of, of California is Spanish-speaking, right? So how do we get into the community, transition folks who are you know, maybe have are, are Spanish native but need more a little bit more work on the English part in order to to have them eligible to get onto these pathways, and then of course um, mirror a lot of the experience that Walmart laid out in their program, and with a particular em emphasis on not only getting the credential for the technical skills, but also in healthcare, the soft skills, the, 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 the employability skills are particularly important. So working on those two sets of skills before they land and uh, transition them into employment. And then I think one of the concerns that we should work on collectively is a, 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 an issue that was recognized by the Future Work Commission in California uh, that the governor uh, Newsom is sponsoring is that as a country, we've been creating a lot of jobs, but we're beginning to create a lot of asset poor jobs, which means um, the jobs don't come with health benefits, they don't come with insurance. You know, uh, as compared to my father-in-law who worked with Boeing for 35 years, Boeing gave him education and training. They gave him, you know, they rotated him around. Mm -hmm. They did so, he had insurance. He had all those assets accompanying employment. We're creating a lot of work that is, has, is asset poor. And so collectively, we have to figure out what are the structures that can provide people with asset that is decoupled from employment. Because I think it's, it's um, our economy is transitioning to where you're with long time, right? Uh, with, with an employer to average tenure now is four and a half years. So how do you get asset if you're not staying with the employer that long? So by assets, we're talking healthcare, uh... We're talking retirement plans. We're talking the training. All of these. All of these. Yes. Uh, we call them. For a long time, they were called fringe benefits. It's hard to imagine them being fringe anymore, right? Right. So, right. Um, and what are some of the who are some of the partners uh, for Futura who can be, uh, you know, who are helping provide this whole range of services? I mean, are the are the community colleges involved? Are there uh, who are some of the other stakeholders? Yeah. So um, in terms of you know, we're working with. Uh, uh, accredited education institutions like Western Governors University, uh, 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 the community colleges, mm -hmm. uh, and providers like Avoxy, who specializes in sort of the English to, to the Spanish transition. Um, and then we're also pairing that with the student success, and then pairing that with the United Healthcare Worker members who work in these occupations all mm -hmm. across California. So they can better represent and coach and mentor on the career awareness, but also the soft skills. Um, so 
you almost have to put together all of those services and touch points in order to take an, a worker or an individual to a, through a successful uh, journey. Mm -hmm. I want to throw a, a question open to the whole group, and I'm hoping we can crosstalk too, which is basically um, we've been talking about past and present, but I want to look ahead a little bit. Uh, what are the what are your next most urgent tasks, uh, both within your industries and within your own companies and programs? You know, what are the what are the the uh, benchmarks or the accomplishments you're eager to nail down in the next 12 months that'll help you hit your goals for the next you know 10 years? Um, anyone's welcome to jump in on that totally not challenging question. <laughs> I'll start by talking about barriers for a second yeah. because as you, what you're making me think of is like um, when we were developing Disney Aspire. Like a barrier to education is obviously the cost of education. So it was really important to us that no cost comes out of pocket for any of our employees. We pay 100% of the tuition. We pay all required books and fees. That was really important. But that then leads you to another barrier. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, if you think about career paths and you think about how do you tell the story of career paths for, for these employees that are experiencing this so that they can see it's one, not a check the box, so like I must do this to get that. And on the flip side, to get leaders to see, look at, look at the skills that these people are gaining. And so how do you tell that story? And so we've worked really hard to tell the stories of pulling leaders in and having them tell their career stories so that everybody can see, look, it's not just how I thought it was. She did this. He did that. So that's a barrier. Um, I want the communities is a barrier that that uh, that we're working on today. The communities themselves aren't a barrier, but the barriers co our communities are facing, mm -hmm. right? You hear a lot about uh, broad-based economic, uh, uh, broad-based broad social responsibility or broad-based inclusion cannot sync up with economic prosperity, right? And yet we know your zip code can determine how much you have access to things, how much you can grow into. Well, let's bust that. Let's bust that. Let's be invested in our communities in ways that we can see that uh, our employees gain something while they're working and that helps their community at large grow bigger and stronger. These are more, way more complex barriers. And I, I have to, uh, I try to think of them today of ones we must work on at the same time is that we are working on something that's more right in front of us, which is giving employees skills. I don't think you can separate the two. It is a big ecosystem, and we've got to be investing in all of it at the same time. I, I have a personal passion. I've had the honor of serving on C-suites and um, opening the um, return on investment discussion and the data driven discussion to what's possible. So two years ago at Davos, we um, launched a research study, um, reworking the revolution. And 97% um, of C-suite execs have a business investment plan. We saw the majority of employees want to be invested in, but only 3% had a workforce plan. Um, and so everyone in this room and everyone live streaming with us gets it. My mission and my passion is to bring that um, high ROI competitive advantage of unlocking potential to C-suite and board leaders. And um, the good news is um, they are um, on it. Um, there's a lot of surveys of board directors and talent, talent resiliency, talent capability, and lack of talent has made it into the top 10 list of every board director survey 
as either the unlock for global competitiveness or you'll fall behind. And so I like to go to the positive, the pull strategy, which is the stories, the individual examples, the pathways, but then support it with good economic data. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned. I've been working on a little research project with my friends at Accenture. It'll be ready in March. And um, I think, uh, you know, CEO tenure is down to 4.3 years. I think that we have an opportunity to get to our CEOs and to our board directors and show them brand new pathways of problem solving um, because we're going to lift the ecosystem yep. and we're going to literally create new employment models, new education models, new access to opportunity models. And I'd like to see future 10 years from now where 97% of all employers have a talent plan to unleash potential. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And I, I hope uh, if I can editorialize a little bit, I hope to see that that talent plan doesn't necessarily uh, focus just on competing for the talent at yeah. the top end of the spear that designs the hot product. You know, in other words, it's not just a competition for the best educated top of the ladder talent. It's a competition across. all the way down. Absolutely. So, Ecosystem. Uh, and it's exciting yeah. to hear about initiatives coming across the other way. It's interesting, 4.3 years CEO tenure, 4.5 years at a company now for rank and file. So see, we're more, we have more in common than we think. Um, yeah. well, but that, this is, yeah, please go ahead. So, um, I know we're going to be focused on the bread and butter and setting setting up those pathways and the mechanics of the pathway. But you know, like when we're thinking ahead, really, what's happening is a lot of our public policies and structures have been have been set up for a day when it was education and training was a one-time inoculation. Get it up front, get it early, get it as high as possible, and hey, that carries you. But the reality, especially you know, Microsoft and other companies would, would really understand that education and training is now becoming a set of booster shop, right? You got to get it often and frequently. But the question is, who pays? This goes back to, the, to, to, to this question. Um, if the public system is highly strained financial, uh, with financial aid uh, debt load just going you know, up, uh, off the chart, then there's not enough money. Many people will say, well, it's the employers who should pay. But if you're not staying with the employers for more than four and a half years, then, then it comes back to you as an individual to pay. And again, I would say that the structures that we have in existence today are inadequate to pace for the economy that is to come. So when I was at with the National Governors Association discussion, we were talking about, gee, we have like um, the 401k where companies can pay into it and it's portable with you over your lifetime. Why, why can't we have a 529 C, a continuous learning account where companies can pay, but it goes with you. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this idea of portability uh, of assets. How do you build asset even if you're not staying with an employer very long? And so I think it's a good time for experimentation for the entire country. We've got to rethink all of these structures so that we as individuals can actually pace and keep up our skills. Just to that point, if I could, I think the whole definition of developing our work, developing your workforce or the workforce, mm -hmm. is changing and has to change even further, right? And how how we measure investment in the workforce, and we don't just link it to not only the job today, but even a career with an employer. How do you go bigger than that? And and how do you how do you just con how do we just continue to push on what it means to truly develop a work? force because where we are today is not where we're going to be seven years from now and we better be doing different things and is that more urgent to, to have those sort of credentials that are transferable from employer to employer and for and maybe even from profession to profession does that become 
even more important if you're, say, in more making a middle class or working class income, because, you know, presumably we are all seen, we're all, we've all had senior posts at our employers, and so another employer will take a chance on us having a certain skill set. But if someone has a sort of maybe more generic job title, is it harder? You know, do, do you need some kind of universally accepted credential to make it easier for other employers to see, oh, this person has the skills that I need? Uh, you know, uh, whether it would be a credential in sort of a certain kind of coding or, a, or AI expertise or a credential in a medical field or a management field. I mean, do, should there be more focus on, uh, on credentials that are short of a college degree, well short of a college degree in terms of expense and effort, but that a worker can still carry with them as one of these assets that's portable? Uh, is that something that you're encountering in, in your work? Uh, open to the table. So portability is very important, but the stackability is uh, equally important. Yeah. So I mean, if you think of what is happening in, in our economy right now, so like if you, the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world, it's really the algorithms are matching us with work, mm -hmm. right? So who else does that? Well, right now it's the middle manager. So if you extrapolate it into the future, is it true that, could it be true that the algorithm is going to be our middle manager? Mm. In that case, the algorithm can only read data. And so if you cannot convert your information, my, my education, my credentials, my experience, my influence, my network into data, then I can't get matched with work, right? So I think what we have to do is um, set up for that world that is to come where we can represent all of our learning profile in this way so that, that we are well positioned, including diverse communities, for um, this matching of work and workers that, that may happen. Mm -hmm. But the converse of it could be very good where, let's say the uh, uh, health occupation is gonna be shifting, then could the data science actually reach out and say, hey, you 100 individuals, you have the closest profile to what we need. Can you come in and get this new stack of, of credential? Mm -hmm. And that would be a much more proactive way of building a workforce uh, rather than sort of the kind of tail wagging the dog uh, aspect that we have sure. right now. That sounds I like agree. an opportunity for LinkedIn. Yeah, things. I agree. It's more stackable than you know this or that. Because mm -hmm. as an example, if you look at somebody who has skill in cloud computing, right? And they could be working on Azure, which is Microsoft. They could be working on AWS. Um, but that's the next layer, right? If they understand <laughs> cloud technology and the different aspects of it, the, um, the other piece of it is stackable. And but the first piece of it is portable, right? So we talk the same thing when you talk about data scientists or you know AI yes. specialists. It's the um, it's the tool, the, the foundational knowledge, and you can always stay current with those stackable credentials. And then there's a soft soft skill element to it, to transferable skills element to it, right? I mean, yes. um, like critical thinking, problem solving, and growth mindset, and all of that. Um, I, I don't think it's, um, I mean, there's some credentials because of the brand name that are more recognized than the others, but I think there is a, there's room for everyone given the number of people who need to be trained. In fact, that is the reason why we, we've been rethinking what higher ed means. Mm -hmm. Today, an mm -hmm. average higher ed individual student is, uh, age is 30 years because we're talking about are we traditional degrees, but they're like two-year degrees, do we have the time to, mm -hmm. you know, and the, and the room for that many people to come out every year. And then we have coding camps, we have Coursera, Udacity, we have Microsoft and AWS having self-paced programs and certifications. There are just so many options. So I think it um, boils down to the certification plus the demonstrable experiences sure. that you can go to the employer with.
I'd add two words, visibility um, and this whole idea about um, gamification and currency. Some of us have heard about um, top coder, yeah. hacker rank, um, but imagine we were all in an ecosystem, right? We have very diverse employers with over 100 years experience on the stage and we were able to access a billion records. Mm -hmm. um, my colleague in the audience, Carrie from Workday and I volunteered our time to sponsor um, hacking this problem with a group called Unreasonable Future. And so some of the uh, data scientists who are working again across industry are saying, you know, none of us were born to do this job. 25 years ago for you, more than that for me. Yeah. <laughs> we learned along the way how to do it. So this idea of we're actually taking these billion records and one of the groups we're working with and saying, so what, what would someone have to do to deconstruct Vaughn's learning path? And then who are people that look like Vaughn that with investment could actually be a CEO? Yep. It's incredible. And we now have that through our partnership. I'm, I'm waving at my friend Carrie for those watching the live stream where we are running that data science. So a lot of times I'll come into a client and they'll say, here's my problem. I have this many engineers retiring in 36 months. There's a 29% pipeline and I'm in crisis. And we get to open up these data pathways to say, well, we're not gonna depend on just this channel. We're gonna bring all our partners in. We're gonna use technology to find a hundred new options. Mm -hmm. By the way, they happen to be inclusive options. Sure. And they may be you know, looking at what we call logical skill adjacencies yeah. with an investment. So one of the big things we're seeing happen is people investing for potential. Mm -hmm not just investing for that technical one thing you did, because sometimes as recruiters, what we thought we hired for in a store leader wasn't what we got. We're using artificial intelligence now to actually go experience in virtual reality and augmented reality. How do you lead a team? Mm -hmm. What are your scores? What's your digital footprint of your skills base? And can I put that on blockchain so I now can carry those assets for the rest of my life? And if I don't ace the test, maybe I get another try. Maybe try. <laughs> or, you know, um, maybe we say, you know, we were talking about maybe you go to this learning pathway. We'd love to have you reapply or look at it again. Or maybe, you know what, you're actually better suited for this job. Mm -hmm. Let's send you over there and you, what we call it undiscovered, undiscovered talent pools. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was qualified to be a, a coder or a medical stenographer because my artificial intelligence flags send me there. It's, it's so exciting. Right. Just, just two things on this, this point. Um, I think there's something to be said for as a company, when you say to your employees, either explicitly that I believe in you, I believe in your future, you, and, and frankly, anybody can do this, right? If you're a small business owner, if you're a small business, how often do you say to your employees, what you're doing is helping our business grow? What you're doing is helping our clients be successful? And then say, and how I've seen you grow and change is this. All of us can do that day in and day out. When we do it at scale at big companies, the soft skills, the human skills, if you do any of the research about where things are going in the future, it's going to be just as important, perhaps more important than the technical skills. That does something for people. That opens up pathways. That gives people... Think back of your own career, think back to mine. There's skills that I'm proud of, but more than anything else, you think back like, wow, when she said that to me, it really made a difference. And that that propelled me. So I think that's huge for employee, employers to, to say that and be transparent and be open. Then on the technical side of things, because that, that helps employees make leaps of faith, right? That helps employees go somewhere that they might not go otherwise. Then on the technical side of things, we have another program called Code Rosie, where we are intentionally investing in the development of female 
um, engineers force in, in the STEM field and being intentional about saying, by the way, the only people that can come into this are female individuals who aren't involved in technology but want to get involved in technology. Sure. Right? And then just they, they, they dive in and they can play with it and learn, make mistakes, and then eventually, you know, be, choose to be successful, choose to leave to your point about portability or choose to stay. A lot of great stuff to go with. Um, we're going to throw the uh, floor open to questions from the audience fairly uh, soon. Before we do, uh, oh, and I also want to remind anyone who's watching us in the live stream that they can uh, send questions to us uh, by, by tweet uh, with the hashtag uh, upskilling. Sorry. Make sure I got that right. Yes, hashtag upskilling. Um, before we do that, I have one sort of speed round question for each of the panelists, and I'm really looking for maybe a two sentence answer from each so forgive me for that artificiality but the question is if, it, uh, if an employer were to come to you and say i want to get my own upskilling program going what is the one piece of advice you would give to them and i'll start with you vaughn i'd say plug into the ecosystem don't start from scratch nice make it a personal mission very nice i would say make it very transparent share information on what jobs are important what's the career path and prospects Discover your own existing workplace, believe in them, and invite them to be the best they can be. Thank you very much, and thank you all so much for such great insights throughout. Um, now is the time for uh, group Q&A. Uh, so if you raise your hand, someone will bring a microphone to you uh, so you can uh, pose a question. I've got a question right here in the front. If you don't mind just waiting a second, they'll bring you a microphone. Thank you, panel. Excellent discussion. My question is, uh, when it comes to talent management, do you deal, do, do you business deal with things such as, uh, has an online public cloud demand planning, communicate with content requirement and, and other things, and how do you all deal with the uh, fourth generation technology? Uh, I want to make sure I'm understanding your question correctly, that you want to have a better sense of, of, uh, of uh, what the content requirements are for a job applicant. Like managers such as, obviously, a poor collaborative, demand planning, communicate content critical requirement, analyze time, build time flows, and others. And how do you all deal with uh, fourth generation technology? Demand planning. Demand planning. Um, yeah, demand planning. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. And fortune technology. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, so I think this is related to what I was sharing as an advice. One of the examples that you know I've read about, which I really like from that perspective, was AT&T, um, mm -hmm. where they launched their multi-year billion-dollar upskilling program, and which was very transparent because they first assessed the skill of the current employees because of significant shift in their business model. And then they realized that there were about 100,000 employees, just half of their workforce, mm -hmm. which was at risk of having obsolete skills or not being able to um, contribute uh, with the right skills. And so one thing they did was uh, something called career intelligence. I'm just trying to recall the details. Um, their portal gave very clear information on which jobs are likely to shrink, which jobs are likely to grow, what are the training paths, um, what kind of earning potential you have with these. So the key was they were very, very transparent and then aligning it with the, you know, the learning paths. But I think what can be added to that is um, 
things like, you know, um, if you can show some videos and what these jobs are like, because I think it's really important to create mm -hmm. that pull for the employees. You cannot force people to go and get trained, but it's this intrinsic motivation. So I think that really helped gauge the interest because people were applying for those learning paths and, and, and they, they have like a multi-year strategy to, um, to train about 100,000 people over three to five years. It was a very dedicated strategy starting from creating awareness to a training plan to assessment of where we are on the strategy with number of people enrolling for each of these programs. Yeah, and they're willing to it now at AT&T, I believe. Yeah. That's the question yeah. here out the turtleneck, uh, close to the aisle, actually. And I'll come back to you in a second. Hi, um, my name's Pat Alper. I wrote a book called Teach to Work, and it's all about mentorship. Um, I'm curious what role mentorship plays, not only in sort of deploying your own teams to help within your company and within your sort of 8th through 12th grade schools in your communities. What roles of mentorship do you play? I'll just speak for a second in, in certain of our programs, like the Code Rosie one I mentioned, mentorship is intentionally built into the design of the program. Others, if you were at um, Disney, you, you would obviously think of being a creative organization. Disney's also a very relationship-oriented organization. Relationships, really, we have so much organic mentorship that, it, that occurs. Um, it's a really important topic for us. And then in Disney Aspire, we organically look to facilitate mentorship by making leaders available to employees to talk different careers. We don't say it has to look like this or it has to look like that. We want the leader to be, we want her choosing to be invested in, in that individual. And then that's something we're looking at to do at scale in different ways going forward. Is that an, is a, does Accenture have a pretty elaborate uh, or a pretty well-instituted mentorship program too? Absolutely. In fact, um, it's a little bit different um, than other organizations in that we actually have career counselors. Mm -hmm. When you think of these really agile liquid workforces, you might work on a project for six months and then yeah. a different project. So by the time the year is over, you've interacted with 10 different sort of project or team leaders. And the idea is this combination of career counseling skills, mentoring skills, but uh, thank you for your book because there's another aspect. We've been talking within our ecosystem, there's community. And so Vaughn and I have been involved as we've said in this, it's working with National Governors Association and helping organizations that don't have the assets we have to open those channels. I worked on the Women on Board Initiative 2020, uh, which was to open up pathways. And I teach at Cornell University and Santa Clara University uh, for the Women Corporate Board Ready Program. Um, not everybody has a board like Accenture that is so highly diverse. So the idea that whether you're that you know 18 year old and that youth that um, you know didn't doesn't have the GED and wants to start at Disney as a cast member or um, many of the senior women I meet who are desperate to get on their first corporate board, um, I think many of us are opening up our ecosystems and we're hacking the old models to give this uh, new pools of talent. Um, and by the way, the US hit that goal. They exceeded it. So let's be, you know, step one. Mm -hmm. uh, more than 20% of boards now are represented uh, with women on them. There's a question uh, here. Oh, hi, yes, I'm here today representing a workforce development um, and sustainable wage task force in central Pennsylvania. And I still very much from our community lens see this as the best kept secret. We have scores of high school students with talent who don't know about these career options. 
And so if we think about households all across America and the conversation going on in those homes about what the teen is going to do next, and imagine you having a teen in your house. Are you thinking about college? Here is an option. Or no, go work for an hourly wage at these local corporations and follow that path. How would you be talking with those teens? Well, it's interesting. That's what we're trying to crack. But we've, uh, as uh, our initial research, we realized when we create personas that are influencing kids throughout this journey, um, parents are big influencers. So we actually got parents as one of the personas, apart from students, educators. And so we want to engage them in a variety of ways because they care about different things, right? Somebody may care about the environment and technology is a great way to do something, uh, what you're passionate about versus you know, your interests and numbers and, and um, analytical, whatever. So we're trying to um, create an, uh, a campus program for schools as well as um, higher ed where they have more opportunities to understand about what these careers are, what do you get to do, interact from a mentorship perspective from people from Microsoft and other tech companies, um, educate um, teachers on this and give them more opportunities. And uh, like I said, you know, um, use on a platform things like day in the life videos and all of that. And then we've also been thinking, it's very, very new, we were just discussing it last week, how do we engage parents? Like what would be those touch points where we can give them more information on what these careers mean? What do they get to do? What are the career prospects? Because they're the really big influencers for that group. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe when we talk next year, I'll have more to share. But what, I, what the point I'm making is it's a big one for us that we want to think about in terms of uh, inspiring them to pick this as a career option versus, hey, what do I do next at this juncture? Can, can I add to that? Um, so, so the hardest part about the career awareness is looking around the corner, right? Uh, especially for the, the youth. And so even if you look at healthcare, for example, the big trend is that healthcare is gonna move out of the hospital into the home. So maybe now, the jobs now, for example, a medical assistant or a licensed vocational nurse, that's more of the care of the patient, right? But when it starts to move out to the home, all of a sudden, you now have to learn how to use sensors and fix like batteries out of uh, apps, you know, like th things that are, is technology integration with the team that is centralized, with the doctor team that is centralized. So now all of a sudden you have IT skills combined with your normal healthcare patient skills. And then the third thing is now you're working in somebody's home. So now you have to be extremely culturally competent. Is that closer to the skill set of maybe the folks like Best Buy who went mm -hmm. into your home mm -hmm. instead of the skill sets today, right? Yeah. So this is going to be the biggest challenge. It's like, how do you look ahead? Because these jobs are all shifting because of the availability of technology. Um, and so the best thing we can do is just begin to look around the corner and, and make some, some guesses in terms of the, the types of skill sets that are more valued versus less valued and beginning to make sure that the digital literacy, for example, is always there, right? As well as some of the traditional things in workforce development. There's a question over here. And I'll come back to the side of the room. Hi, my name is Nikki and I'm with the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation. Uh, first, I wanna say, Vaughn, thank you for bringing up the point about the financial aspect of education, the barriers there is actually at the NGA meeting when you spoke about that. Um, so it's great to see you again. Um, Eva, you brought up an interesting point about the statistic of the life cycle for CEOs today. So my question kind of goes through that as we have a more mobile 
workforce and we have leadership that's changing. How do you build into kind of the sustainability or the core competencies of an institution like a business the importance of investing back in your workforce when you have changes in the leadership? So how do you build that so it transcends beyond the kind of initial kind of spark of that? It's such a wonderful question, and um, I'll get right to the point. Um, metrics, visibility, transparency, and authenticity matter. And you've been hearing the dialogue around us. I mentioned board directors now have it, many in their top 10, many in their top three. Um, I, I recently attended a, a CIO conference where um, I could have thought I was at a chief HR officer conference because the CIOs were saying, I can get capital. I can't get the talent to fill the rare jobs and, um, and I'm not achieving the diversity goals. And so what a lot of people are pursuing is more of a stakeholder scorecard than a shareholder scorecard. And you know, you're hearing a lot about that, but um, I get to partner with amazing CEOs who are saying whether they're leading Walmart or they're leading Accenture you know, or they're leading Disney, um, that everybody goes home at night and speaks to the people that matter to them. And they either said they had a good day or they didn't have a good day. And most of us are uh, the duality of employees and consumers and influencers. And now it goes on social media. Yes. So this idea of balanced scorecards, full stakeholders, and if I can just get one more idea to answer your question that I'm working on, I'm really excited about, what is the scorecard of a responsible business that actually looks at the humans, right? And it's not the you're diverse or you're successful, you are inclusive growth because you can get the best talent who see you as an appreciating capability. They, there's no barriers to your proceeding to be the CEO or to be the head of talent and organization. So those are the three big ideas. Responsible business is changing the scorecards, stakeholders versus classic shareholders, and then transparency and authenticity because your employees are going to tweet about it anyway. You yeah. might as well set the stage yeah. and then report it out. Is that fair? I just had one thing to your scorecard point. Yes. So I think I think thinking of a social scorecard is another big important aspect of things. Mm -hmm. Make a definition of a, of your social scorecard as a company. Choose to say, my social scorecard includes our impact on this community, includes how we're investing in the workforce, and includes so-called soft things, and make those soft things hard. Glass door, fishbowl, those are now being factored in in a lot of CEO succession that were never included yeah. before, and they're yeah. getting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. A couple of questions on this. Yeah. Hi, uh, Kat Ward from JFF. Um, thank you for sharing stories of what your companies are doing. I'm curious if there are stories or case studies from companies that weren't represented that you would be able to share with us. What inspires you? Whose work are you trying to steal and bring home? I can offer 35, but I don't want to dominate. Um, um, this is what we do for a living. So I would just say, you know, we've mentioned some of our stories, but some of the ones that don't get the high visibility because they're not Fortune 100. Um, you know, we've looked at Chamberger, we've looked at Hitachi, we've looked at companies that have built in. Hitachi has a happiness index. There's so many um, new scorecards of best practices of increased productivity, higher engagement. Some of um, the whole, um, one of the examples we had this morning is weekly uh, questions that employees ask or uh, asked about the like and loathe is one of our favorite. Do more of this, do less of that, and helping the leaders mentorship um, and social skills to be a better leader, to create raving fans and followership. 
those are some of the things, but in all seriousness, this is what we try to do. And that's why, you know, our association with Aspen, we haven't mentioned this, but Jamie and Maureen take anything we give them and they megaphone it out. Um, the uh, upscale playbook that was produced years ago and funded by Walmart is just one small example. I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but you have uh, five years of collected case studies. I think we could share with us who want to learn these new ways. Is that, is that fair, Maureen? I don't want to put you and Jamie on the spot. But. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, I had a question way in the back, and then I'm going to come back over to the front. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Meg O'Grady, Crosby Marketing Communications. Back in 2011, um, I actually led a team that built the Military Spouse Employment Partnership, of which Disney, Accenture, and uh, Microsoft are part of, and Walmart was actually a founding member. So clearly you have a lot of the right people in the room. This is a population that is what we call in permanent recession, which is always between 20 and 25% unemployment. And yet they have $4,000 for each member to use for certificates or an associate's degree. The largest community of active duty service members are in California at 153,000. And so my question one is, are you working with the program or that population because it is a really wonderful population that has central communication and a lot of resources that you could use to innovate? And the second thing is, um, is there any legislative work that's been done on that 529C type employer match? Thank you. We, we do our, 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 we do a lot of work in the veteran space at, at Disney, um, not only from just an inclusive standpoint, but from a career pathing standpoint. And it's a big intentional focus of ours to get both veterans and their and you know families of veterans to think about incredible career paths. And many of them come into us in different ways. A lot come in security, but a lot come into other roles and want to have a second career in, in something that they didn't have before, whether it be in Florida or in California. So a lot of intentional effort um, in that space for us. Yes, I, I, I'm aware of that effort that happens in Microsoft too, but it's just a different team, so I can't speak for them. But I, I do know that there is a lot of effort using our certifications and content um, to upskill and reskill veterans, returning moms. Uh, they've identified certain um, segments that they work with, and that is their focus, including um, you know, getting grants and a lot of other things that they're doing. So yes. And on the 529C, I'm looking at Chamber of Commerce. I'm hoping mm -hmm. someone will pick up on the idea and prototype it. Yes. A question here in the front. Hello, my name is James Jean Claude. I'm the CEO of a, um, the Binary Bootcamp, which is a tech training academy. And my question is for I hope I pronounced her name correctly, Shweta. Yes. Um, you mentioned that um, Microsoft is focusing very strongly on Azure, and um, I am always interested in emerging technologies. I'm also the DC ambassador for Hashgraph, which is the evolution of um, blockchain technology. But um, I've, note, I've read in some articles that uh, Microsoft was also starting to emphasize Rust, and um, I was thinking about maybe offering Rust as part of our curriculum. Um, but then I've started reading articles that um, Microsoft has a project Verona where they're going to kind of tweak with Rust and make your own custom version of Rust. And so I wanted to know if, um, if that's accurate. And if so, should we hold off on developing a Rust curriculum or wait till you um, finish project Verona? So uh, we're focusing on Azure because Azure is our cloud environment. 
and most of our most of our trainings and content is focused now on Microsoft technology. I um, I do not have the information, unfortunately, to answer your question, but we can connect offline and I'll be able to connect you with the right team because that's the advantage of working with such a large organization. It's uh, there are different teams working on each of these things. So happy to connect with you um, offline. Thank you. Yeah. Question here. Hi, I'm Rachel Caprillion. I currently work with McDonald's Corporation. And I'm lucky to be here with Lisa Schumacher, who runs our Archways Opportunity uh, Program, which has tens of thousands of people who participated in it. Uh, and, it, and our, our students um, are rather all over the map with the kind of um, education that they seek. So this is a Ellie referenced um, the Walmart uh, cohorts of people working together in certain uh, skill sets. Um, you ran a number of you know, hugest community college network. Um, what is the best way to acquire these skills, particularly in the era of all this online education? And as you also referenced, students that are working full time, that are parents and that only have so much time and how do they even fit that into their schedules? So, do so you talk about skills in general or are there specific skills or is it more, is your question more curriculum design? Curriculum design, how they acquire them and how they can go to the next level with all these different you know, methods and, and programs. So, so the question is focusing on curriculum design. Thank you. And, and, and I think, sorry, just because you didn't have the mic. So, um, and I think one real common theme is that the flexibility to mm -hmm. meet the workers where they are yeah. is, is just, is, that seems to be something across the board that, that, that you're each drilling in your own way. I'll just say this to us, convenience was a major important factor from a research standpoint of working adults and how do they get access to education. So all the advances in online, online we knew from the beginning was going to be really important to us. What we've added to that from a social aspect of how do we connect people together. So uh, the, the uh, general manager at the Contemporary Resort in Orlando, that's the one the monorail goes through, just to give you a picture. Um, <laughs> she created a study hall. And she took a space and she created a complete study hall for people to come together. So cast members, employees come in, they're studying online, but whether they have the chance, it's not about like we're in the same course. It's just about we're both going through something together and that has powerful leaps. I'm afraid we've uh, we've reached a, a, a stopping point, but the idea that we're all going through something together is, is a great note to end on. So thank you to all of our panelists. Thank you, thank you to the thank Aspen you. Institute and uh, enjoy the rest of the day.